The Chamber of Secrets has been reopened for further examination. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, special movie edition, the Harry Potter Film Club for extremely amateur movie critics. Oh, don't mind that. It's just the cat. <clears throat> if, um, if anybody was looking for some stuff, then all they'd have to do would be to follow the spiders. Gather round! Gather round. Can everybody see me? Can you all hear me? Tell them Hogwarts is no longer safe. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And we're talking about the film adaptation of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which we watched this weekend. For New Year's. That's what we did for our New Year's weekend. It's true. So happy New Year, everybody. Happy 2017. I Welcome know. Here to we go. perhaps the second worst year in a really long time. No, <laughs> that's fucked up. We got married in 2016. We did get married in 2016. That was nice. Also, like, time is an illusion. So it being 2017 matters not at all. This got deep so fast. (laughs) What did you think of this movie? So Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Quick recap. We don't need Uh, to recap it. If you don't know what happened in it, what are you doing listening to this episode? People are petrified and there's a snake fight at the end. And a spider fight. And a spider fight. What did I think of this movie? I thought it was way better than Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, like agreed. Like leaps and bounds better. Agreed. That being said, still, to my mind, not a standalone movie without the book that accompanies it. Right, yeah. I remember I actually saw the movie before I read the books because, as we've discussed in this podcast, I was on this weird, like, eight-year Harry Potter boycott as a moody teenager, and I was completely flummoxed by what was going on. I think it'd be pretty hard to uh, watch Chamber. And, I don't uh, mean this to be like a snobby thing. I just can't imagine seeing the Harry Potter movies and not reading the Harry Potter books because, like, maybe a quarter of the plot is in the movies. Yeah, well, I had a troubled youth, so uh, not really. I just was troubled by the fact that I didn't read Harry Potter, but... Uh, I just, it would have been, this movie would have been extremely hard to follow. Yeah. If you hadn't read book one and book two. Yes. But that being said, as an adaptation of a book I really liked and actually liked a lot more on this reading, yeah, it was a fun movie. It was more fun to watch and enjoyable than movie one, which was almost painful. Not painful, but just like... I got really bored during it. Incom- yeah, it felt incomplete. Both movies are really long. Yeah, but this one didn't feel really long. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't stand on its own super well because in order to adapt a Harry Potter book, you have to make pretty draconian cuts. <laughs> draconian. Sorry, that's nope, funny to me. No pun intended. Pretty draconian cuts, because even the shorter ones are really plot-dense, and every aspect of a J.K. Rowling plot really matters. 
Right, and depends on every other aspect of the plot. She has very puzzle piece plots. So right. things really, really, really carefully have to fit into place. So even seemingly extraneous, fun detail scenes in the books that get cut out of the movies, you realize you're missing something that becomes crucial later on. Like just even a glance or, okay, here's a really good example. One of our favorite scenes in the book, the dwarf Halloween scene. Look, sorry. One of our favorite scenes in the book, the Dwarf Valentine's Day dwarf scene. Dwarf Halloween would have been sick, though. I Dwarfs should be at every Every holiday. Event. Anyway. Anyway, so the Dwarf Valentine scene isn't in the movie, which is A, a bummer because it seems like particularly cinematic and like it would have been hysterical. But B, that is when Ginny realizes that Harry has Tom Riddle's diary and literally it's one line. It's just a look. Like Ginny's eyes get really wide when she sees the diary fall out of Harry's school bag. And that's her motivation for going into the dorm and stealing it. And so you get the stealing the diary scene in the movie, but you don't know who did it and you don't know why. So then when it turns out to be Ginny, there's like less undergirding of that particular plot twist. Right. Yeah. And it just, uh, it's kind of, it feels kind of random in the film. It feels so random in the film that it's Ginny because you get no Ginny airtime at all. And there's all these scenes that J.K. Rowling writes in the book that you don't know that Ginny's role in them is significant, but that's because she's foreshadowing, which is what authors right. do. And you can't blame Chris Columbus for those cuts because you can't put everything into a movie. Yeah, I mean, the movie itself is two hours and 40 minutes long already. Yeah, it's it's almost too long. It probably is too long. But at the same time, what else could you possibly take out? Yeah. Here's what you would take out. There are two scenes that are too fucking long. The Quidditch scene. The Quidditch scene is always too long in these films. The Quidditch scene makes no (laughs) earthly sense. Yeah, they destroy half the stadium in this film. They're taking out like support beams. (laughs) It's terrifying. We watched it with our beloved roommate Marie, who works in interior design and knows about architecture. And she was like, those are weight bearing. <laughs> like, <laughs> the stadium's gonna fall down. And that's how 100 students at Hogwarts died uh, yeah, that just, year. Okay, so the Quidditch scene a- is too fucking long. The spiders in the woods scene, like, is too fucking long. And it's just because they wanted to show off their CGI spider chops. Right. And it's a good scene, but it goes on, I would say, five to ten minutes longer than it needs yeah, to. Yeah, I would add another. I'd add the car journey to Hogwarts which they add in all this kind of extraneous peril. They that do. Wasn't it's like in it becomes like a car chase. Yeah, Harry falls out of the car and is like hanging on to the handle and Ron's hands are too sweaty so he's having a hard time getting him back inside. And uh, I don't know, it's like the Whomping Willow's enough, bro. Well, also, it's just one of these things where it feels like there's a couple of moments of, like, pandering to the kinds of movies you expect to see when you see kind of, like, a blockbuster for this age group. Yeah. You don't need a fucking car chase in Harry Potter. Right. Nobody asked for that. Yeah, so there's a couple of action sequences that I got... I, like, would fast-forward through if we weren't watching this specifically to take note of everything in it. Yeah, well, and the funny thing about scenes like that there's no suspense in the fact that the car is in front of the Hogwarts Express. Like the you train know they're isn't not gonna hit the yeah, car. Yeah, you know they're not gonna get killed in the first fifteen minutes of the movie. The thing that's annoying about the Rogue Bludger scene too is it's 
too long and bloated, but it's also completely different from the scene in the book, so the actual plot points are, like, all but lost. In what way? Well, okay, so the whole deal in that scene, and what's so great about that scene, is Harry making the decision to send Fred and George away. Like, so they're flanking him really closely the whole time, trying to drive off the bludger, And Harry, like, makes the decision to go for the snitch and just, like, risk the bludger, which, like, develops both Harry and Fred and George characters. Mm. None of that happens in the movie. It's just, like, him versus Malfoy. And Malfoy is, like, a much better seeker in the film than he is in the books, which kind of throws off the whole dynamic of, like, Malfoy having bought himself onto the team. Also, why are Nimbus 2001s evil looking? <laughs> like the Slytherins show up with these fucking horrifying like demon brooms. Why would they make brooms? They're, they're, they're just they have nice kind of black no, handles, like they're, sleek. No, they yeah, I guess they look like looking. they were designed for evil. Well, they wanted to, you know, maybe Nimbus Company wanted to go kind of a darker route for this season's brooms. I don't think that makes any sense. Um, I don't know. I actually missed a significant amount of the Quidditch scene because I was making popcorn for everyone in the kitchen. It was so. good popcorn. Well, that's yeah. good because the Quidditch scene is bullshit. It's yeah. not... I knew I could God. tap... I knew I could tap out safely for Quidditch. For how for irritating... For how irritating I find Quidditch in the books, it's so much worse in the movies. God, I hate Quidditch. The Rogue Bludger was satisfyingly violent, though. Yeah, no, it smashed his arm. Yeah. And I actually... Mean, it was... It, there was some... You felt some peril there. The scene right after that where... Sorry. The scene right after that where Gilderoy takes all the bones out of Harry's arm is appropriately disgusting in the movie. And that hilarious. Was, it's hysterical. That was a really, really, really good scene. <laughs> One of those things that actually is cinematic enough that it's fun to have a movie version to see it. It is weird to watch the filmmakers make decisions about what people are going to want to watch for like 15 full minutes. I actually think the basilisk fight is also way too long. Yeah. And like, so it's weird that he made the choice or that the filmmakers and the director made the choice to make the actual fight with the snake really, really, really long, but like way, 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 way compress the dialogue with Tom Riddle. Because to me, the most interesting part of when Harry is in the chamber is that incredibly like crackling face-to-face with past Voldemort. Like it's incredibly fulfilling and like fascinating dialogue. Like it's a really, really, really good moment. And it annoys me that it feels like Chris Columbus thinks something that J.K. Rowling doesn't think, which is that like kids are dumb and get bored easily and kids are going to want to see a snake fight for 20 minutes but aren't going to want to listen to dialogue. J.K. Rowling doesn't pander in that way. She actually lets like emotional moments land, which I feel like these early films, until you get to film number three, none of the emotions land. It's just like, Foom, 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 foom. Like, it's, they're both, they're like action movies in a way that's not very satisfying to me. There's some nice moments with Hagrid and... There are, uh, you're right. Actually, here's a thing that is much better in the movie than in the book, is the last scene in the Great Hall. When Hagrid comes back, because in the movie version, Ron has sent Errol to tell... Azkaban to send Hagrid back and so Errol like gets lost or dies or whatever (laughs) along the way and so Hagrid is late coming back so he comes in in the middle of the feast celebrating the Chamber of Secrets defeat thing and the whole school gives Hagrid a standing ovation and Hagrid and Harry have this really beautiful moment of like understanding and like 
filial love. And that doesn't happen in the book. And I found that an immensely satisfying ending. Because on the book, they just get on the Hogwarts Express and Harry's like, LOL, what? muggles don't fucking care about me. Hagrid shows up in, at like 3 a.m. at their like party in the dormitory or whatever in but the book. But there isn't that like emotional... And he like cuffs them on the shoulder or whatever. Yeah, there isn't yeah. that emotional moment where the whole school acknowledges Hagrid's sacrifice. Yes, that part is great. It's That's better in the movie. Yeah, Hagrid taking us... Hagrid kind of being the emotional anchor of the first two films works really well. Really, really well. And it's a good choice from the screenplay writers and the director, I think. It's also... But the the reason they can do it is because, again, in this movie, Robbie Coltrane is a fucking treasure. He is so good as Hagrid. Yeah. So, like, it's easy to anchor those scenes on an actor so incredibly skilled. You have to rely a lot more on the grown-up actors because the kid actors, let's... We could move on to talking about these guys they're really still developing yeah i would say they give much stronger performances in this film i mean every aspect of this film i think is an improvement on the first one but absolutely uh, agree you know you still see uh you still see daniel radcliffe and uh emma watson kind of honing their craft as you definitely like, however do old they were when they are they 12 i don't know we'd have to look they're it probably up, but. but they're in that age range mm-hmm. i would still yeah at this point Ron is still the strongest of the three actors. Mm-hmm. But definitely Harry and Hermione are catching up in this one. And a thing that like bugs me a tiny bit, it doesn't matter a lot, but they change Hermione's look a lot for this one. So she's like really, really, really pretty. And partly it's just Emma Watson is lovely and came into her own much sooner than those two boys. <laughs> but like her hair is a lot, her hair is not frizzy. It's like more kind of curly and, and really voluptuous. She just, she doesn't look like early books Hermione to me. Um, and they write in the sexual tension with Ron. Yeah. Really early. Yeah. So Hermione is de-petrified because the mandrakes are stewed. And uh, that's another great scene. Ooh, the Mandrake scene is great. The Mandrake in the movie. scene is excellent world building. Oh, and yeah. And they look really cool and weird. And, and they're disgusting. Anyway, so Hermione is restored and rushes into the Great Hall and gives Harry a great big hug. And then there's this weird non hug between her and Ron. And she like almost hugs him and then she stops and they both like blush and then they shake hands. And I just, I feel like. In the book, that's not there. I didn't. I wasn't reading that in Chamber of Secrets. No. And you know, by at this point, when the movie came out, all the books hadn't been written yet. Well, so but, you don't even know that they're going to be getting together. No, but by the time the movies came out, they were on. By the time this movie came out, I think they were on like book four. Yeah. That stuff starts to happen even in three. Like that tension, but I just it kind of. I guess whatever, I'm not giving enough credit to 12-year-olds, but, like, it kind of <laughs> grossed me out that they were already establishing this, like, romantic connection between those two because I feel like you barely have their friendship yet. Just a hint of it. I don't know. I don't know. That's, like, a really, really, really non-subtle scene at right. the end where she right. gives Harry this hug. It's very sisterly. It's very spontaneous. Like, they're, the, the, the quality of their love is very clear. And then she's like, oh, can't touch Ron. Like, he might get a boner. And I'm just like... <laughs> I know that's true, but I don't know. I didn't love that. The Penelope Clearwater Percy sex scene was really graphic and random, I thought. Alex, Uh, stop. Sorry. No, that's, it's just disgusting. (laughs) Obviously, there is no sex scene in this movie. Well, when you Google 
Penelope Clearwater, Percy Weasley sex scene, you find the deleted scene. Or maybe that's not from the <laughs> It's movie. just anime. Oh my god. <laughs> You've been watching what's anime porn Just Harry called? Potter, like hentai. hentai. <laughs> I wish we hadn't said that. Yeah. Well, we don't actually do that or endorse it. I super I don't we... endorse it. Well, no, you know what? I don't disendorse yeah, yeah. it. That's not you. sex positive. If uh, you're into Harry Potter hentai, like, that's fine. I don't want to watch it even a little bit. <laughs> um, other standout performances. I would say Jason Isaacs as Lucius Malfoy. Excellent. Oh my Great god. Great villain. He's weightier in the movie. Yes. He's it, his his presence is more magnetic in the movie than in the book. I, I really like Lucius in the book. I like Lucius in the book too, but that but Jason Isaacs like is he's crazy good yeah. as Lucius. Yeah. Who they call Lucius. Lucius. Which was weird to me. I guess <laughs> That's maybe how you say it. I think it, it just keeps sounding like they're calling him Lucy, which makes me laugh. Right. I Well, okay, the other thing we have to say about Lucius is his fashion is banana pancakes good. Oh, my God. Good. Yeah, the, the costume designer for Lucius. Oh, uh, my God. Lucius looks... I'm going to just fucking call him Lucius. That's his name. I don't Lucius. think you pronounce it Lucius. Lucius Malfoy. Jim Dale pronounces it Lucius, and yeah. I trust him in all things. <laughs> Um, he has, there's this one at the very end when he comes in with Dobby and like, is like threatening Dumbledore. He has these like two huge silver snake brooches, or I think maybe they're like cape pins. Yeah. I think they're holding up his cloak, but they're so cool. And I don't know, the whole time he's like, you can't stop looking at him. He has that crazy. He's got that tight like snake cane, which is concealing his wand. Okay, we have to talk about a Lucius moment. Oh my, yeah, this is the this is one of the weirder choices. Uh, we in all the film. screamed. <laughs> the all of us watching this movie screamed. Okay, so at the end when Lucius comes back to yell at Dumbledore, Harry does the whole switcheroo where he forces Lucius to free Dobby by hiding a sock in the diary. But um, in the book, Lucius gets really angry and turns to him and sort of lunges at him. In the movie, he pulls out his wand and says, Avada. He is preparing to straight up fucking murder Harry. Murder a child. In cold blood. In, in a the school. hallways of his school. Like, Which? he said Avada and all of us went, <gasps> <laughs> Like, I do not, re- yeah, I did not remember that. I thought that was a really poor choice. <laughs> like, Lucius has no chill, but that is insane. Like, Lucius is not a psychopath. No, it'd be like if he pulled a Glock on him, you know? It was insane. I thought it was a very bad choice. I guess the only thing you could say is that in movie two, we don't actually know what Avada Kedavra is. Right. So maybe that's like an Easter egg that you're supposed to figure out later, but it's fucked up. <laughs> And Dobby literally has to save Harry's life in that moment, which is just the stakes are too high. Like, that makes that scene way too intense. Yeah, it it escalates quickly. Holy shit. His wand is cool, though. Oh, yeah. The wand is legit. He's dandy as fuck. He pulls it like a concealed switchblade from his cane. Ugh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So badass. The other remarkable performance, I would say genuinely remarkable, is Kenneth Branagh. As Gilderoy Lockhart. Yes. Who is honestly maybe one of the most perfect casting choices in this whole series of films. He is so, I mean, God, I would watch him do anything. Side note, watch the film version of Othello in which Kenneth Branagh plays Iago. It's the shit. That's my like other movie recommendation with him in it. He's fucking phenomenal as Iago. And they're kind of similar characters, actually. Like, 
really, really, really conniving, scything assholes that come across as your friend and then they try to fucking ruin your life. Yeah, every every line is delivered so perfectly. Um, for some Harry Potter characters, I have like my own kind of book version and then there's the film version, but I, I don't know. For me, Kenneth Branagh has always been Gilderoy Lock, especially because I saw this movie before I read the book. But even then, like Alan Rickman isn't necessarily who I'm picturing when I read... Right, that's a different Snape. Snape. Like, I have book Snape and movie Snape, and I find the two to be rather different. Even though I really like Alan Rickman's interpretation, it's not necessarily my interpretation, but Kenneth Branagh is just so Gilderoy that it's hard for me to think of anyone else when I'm reading the books. He is not as good-looking as she describes Gilderoy, but I don't think that matters because his manner is so perfect, and his hair is great. I wonder if that's a... Do you think it's a wig? Yeah. Oh. Duh. Movie magic. Anyway, <laughs> it's a really good wig. Um, and it's, he's, he's so charismatic. But yeah, I think when I look really closely at his face, like he's not hot in the way that I imagine Gilderoy initially, but it super doesn't matter. He's so funny and he suffuses the character with like so much malice, but also so much humor. He's just, yeah, it's perfect. Like when he loses his memory, that little moment where he's like, funny sort of place, is this where you live? It's like a, that's like an LOL line in the movie. One of my biggest like movie, it's not really a performance issue. I guess it's more of a technology issue, but I don't love Dobby. Mm. His voice is great. Yeah, the voice work is excellent. But this came out at around the same time as the first Lord of the Rings movie. And I think it's probably pretty similar technology to make Dobby and Smeagol. I think it came out a little after, actually. I think... Well, that's even worse then, because Smeagol yeah. is so much better. I, I found Dobby a little bit creepy. It was like watching an actually fully animated character in a live-action movie. I didn't find him all that affecting as, like, an alive creature. Yeah, the tech definitely improves by movie 7. It's true, because Dobby in movie 7, it's like watching an actual living thing in the movie so you can see the cgi get way better yeah and like the motion capture and stuff so i was like a little disappointed just watching dobby but that's not really the fault of anybody's performance that's just i thought the dobby performance overall was good oh i did too the voice was great but i just the cgi like is it's like a little bit it's still a little bit like jumpy and weird i didn't love it uh unsung heroes oh my god yes shirley henderson who plays Moaning Myrtle, is so perfect. Her Moaning Myrtle voice, it's chilling and it's hilarious. And she was like perfectly cast in that role. It's I'm so excited every time she comes back in the movies because I could just watch scenes and scenes and scenes of her being such a goddamn weirdo. Yeah, you really get the feeling that she's just been sitting in there for 50 years. You do. You also get the feeling that there's this actress that exists somewhere that has just been waiting for this role to exist. (laughs) She's actually really funny. She's um, one of the trio of kind of like wanker best friends in the Bridget Jones movies. She's hysterical in Bridget Jones. And that's her like real voice. She just has a very, very, very funny, specific character actress voice. She's so good as Moaning Myrtle. Who's yours? Mine would be Mark Williams as Arthur Weasley, who does so much with just like two scenes, really. Mm -hmm. The scene at the breakfast table when he's talking with them about the car and he's psyched that it worked, but he also has to be kind of pissed for Mrs. Weasley, which is a hilarious scene in the book. And he just really, I don't know, he captures that character and his showdown with Lucius Malfoy. The scene is really truncated in the movie, but they really, I think they really communicate what it's all about. In the books. 
Oh, he's really well cast. He's mm-hmm. great. Actually, I think Molly Weasley is really great too. Yeah. The Weasleys like family dynamic is played really nicely. Yes. Oh, I like seeing the burrow. Just the house itself is another unsung hero. Although yes. it's a bummer that you don't get the gnome scene. Mm, yeah. Well, there's so many there's so many lovely scenes that just couldn't make it in. The denoming, the death day party. Oh, that's right. There's no death day party. And the dwarves are three amazing scenes. You in know, chamber. another thing you don't get is you don't get the squib thing. So oh, you're right. That's never explained. We don't learn why. And that actually, it, that creates a plot hole, which is a bummer. Because you don't understand why the basilisk targets Argus Filch. Because it, it does. It seems pretty random yeah. um, in that scene. So I also think, like, Ginny's performance is really good. But I wish that she had more to do. They cut a lot of Ginny's scenes. Who didn't have that many scenes in the book. I know, but even those. With, but, but she, little Bonnie Wright, is a, she's a lovely child actress and she grows up. I mean, she just, she plays that role really, really nicely. All she really gets to do is make her eyes very, very wide, but she does a good job of that. <laughs> I don't know if Daniel Radcliffe learned this in some sort of workshop, but Harry keeps doing this really creepy thing where he's just like, randomly caressing people's hands (laughs) and he gets to do it a lot in this movie because of all the petrified people does he stroke anyone's hand who's not been petrified no i think it's only petrified people but anytime someone gets petrified well or jenny he does it to jenny who's not technically petrified (laughs) but who's like unconscious um but he keeps but he's doing it in this so the weirdest thing is when it's justin finch fletchley and he harry comes across nearly headless nick and justin finch fletchley both petrified and rather than do what i think he does in the book which is just like stand there and panic he goes up to justin and he like almost puts his hand in justin's hand and he's kind of like stroking the hand (laughs) it's super creepy he does the same thing the the way he finds the paper in Hermione's hand is he's like freakily kind of stroking her hand it makes it look like he has like a fetish (laughs) it's a super weird (laughs) acting tick that he develops in this movie and it's like incredibly distracting I think he's trying he's trying to show his distress and care right no I I get what he's trying to telegraph but it's like a weird it just comes it reads really uh... well and the camera really like lingers on those moments so I think everybody is trying to show that Harry Potter is somebody who's like really caring and empathetic and it comes across as he's guilty but all you see is he's just like just like creepily stroking hands like over and multiple, over. Yeah, multiple scenes. Hermione, Ginny, Justin. I think he does it one more time and I forget to whom. Anyway, it's super gross that he keeps doing <laughs> it. And I'm really glad that he lets go of that particular tick. So, uh, yeah, I give this movie, how many house points did we give the last one? I don't know. 25 house points to this movie. Yeah, we're not being consistent, but... Neither is Hogwarts. (laughs) But I would say Hogwarts, the set dressing is better in this film, and Hogwarts looks more complete than it did. Yeah, it's a more fully realized world, and it's better acting overall. And, oh, one thing we should say is, like, it's very sad, but you can kind of tell that Richard Harris is on Death's Door. He's, like, almost inaudible in this movie. Like, he is really old. He's good, though. He's great. No, yeah. he's a really good Dumbledore. I, I even liked I liked his performance better in this film than the one before, actually. I did, too. But Dumbledore seems exhausted. Yeah. And it's, like, really sad. But he dies pretty soon after he makes this film. So yes, he does. You can kind of tell that he's waning a little bit. R.I.P. Richard Harris. Yeah. 
Super sad. Alan Rickman. Oh my god. He gives another great... I mean, he's just great in all these movies. He's so good. I can't talk too much about him having died this year. I like what a weirdo Snape is in this film. Yeah. He's also... I like that instead of being obsessed with Harry, he gets hilariously singularly obsessed with, like, getting rid of Lockhart. He just fucking hates Lockhart. (laughs) But in a way that's really relatable, because obviously he hates all the Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers, and you always have those moments of Snape trying to get rid of that teacher for, like, a variety of reasons. But in this one, it, like, the motivation makes a lot more sense because Lockhart is the worst. Yeah. Yeah. We miss Alan Rickman immensely. It's... He's he's a, he was a big loss this year. So, how about Tom me. Riddle? I mean, he's fine. He's hot. Yeah, it's he doesn't have a ton to do. Yeah, he gets kind of truncated a bit. The diary scene's really cool. Yeah, it is. I like that it's in kind of very nineteen fifties like sepia tones or nineteen forties, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, anyway, just uh, some loose ends there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Chamber of Secrets, good, pretty good movie. Pretty good movie. Definitely enjoyable. Would watch again. Will watch again. And will, yes. 100% will watch again in our lives. Next, we're on to Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. Going back to Book World. If you need a reminder on the chapters that we are going to cover in this week's book episode, it is um, Prisoner of Azkaban, chapters 1, 2, and 3, which are Owl Post, Aunt Marge's Big Mistake, and The Night Bus. So, yeah, join us later this week. We're going to talk about our favorite Harry Potter book. But in the meantime, see you soon. Happy New Year. Thanks, amigos. Moaning Myrtle. Who's Moaning Myrtle? I'm Moaning Myrtle. I wouldn't expect you to know me. Who would ever talk about ugly, miserable, moping, moaning Myrtle? She's a little sensitive.